Every magic trick consists of three parts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, a deck of cards, a bird, or a man. The second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. Every magic trick has a third act, the hardest part, the part we call the prestige. Welcome to Now Playing, the movie review podcast. Are you watching closely? Hosted by Arnie, Jacob, and Stuart. They're magicians, Your Honor. Today, we are reviewing Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. Pardon me. It's very rare to see real magic. This podcast is spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. I see more secrets. Sarah, secrets are my life. Listener discretion is advised. I hope you enjoy the mountain air. This will take some time. Today we're discussing The Prestige, starring Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Piper Paraboo, Rebecca Hall, and Scarlett Johansson, directed by Christopher Nolan. Are you listening closely? This is Arnie, the co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. This is Jacob, the brave soul who will bind a lovely woman. But what kind of knot do you use? I don't remember! <laughs> oh, what a knot I'm in. We're discussing The Prestige, a movie I never wanted to watch again and certainly never wanted to review on Now Playing. I remember when we were discussing doing a Nolan retrospective. This was ultimately one of the obstacles I kept bumping up against was that you were afraid to do this movie. If I were to frame it correctly, it's not that you wouldn't mind talking about it. It's that you feel like your opinion could be so inflammatory and unpopular that people with pitchforks might come for you. I know I never thought that. I'm used to the pitchforks coming. I think we all are by now anyway. Although, Jacob, you've never seen this, right? No, I'm the newbie. I did watch it twice for this review, though, but I had never seen it before. See, and my feeling was, much like our Batman Begins review, that I would be standing alone and just making arguments that neither of you agree with. And that's not a fun position. Welcome to my world. Uh, Marvel, anyone? How many 40 movies I not recommended? So... Yeah, there was this. This came out after Batman Begins, though, and I did go back and rewatch Batman Begins as part of this Nolan retrospective so I could see it not sandwiched in between the superb Dark Knight and the horribly awful Batman and Robin. And I listened to my review. It's one of my most controversial. When people feel like insulting me, they're always like, well, you're the guy who didn't recommend Batman Begins. Well, watching it this time, this was my fourth time watching the movie after swearing I'd never watch it again when we reviewed it. I stand by everything I said, but my overall opinion has softened a little bit. I gave it a solid not recommend. Now I'm kind of weak on the borderline. I don't know that it's not worth seeing. I just know I'm not entertained. And I do want to retract something I said in that Batman Begins review, though. Stuart, this has happened twice now. It happened with Texas Chainsaw, and now it's happened with Batman Begins. Now when I watch it, I couldn't not think of our review and the 9-11 allegories you said were in there. And I didn't see it when we were having that discussion. I didn't know you were going to bring it up. I didn't see it when I watched the movie. But now watching the movie, 
thinking of 9-11, thinking of where America was, thinking of fear, thinking of the economics of the time and all of the stock market subplot in there, I do think you're right. I think viewed as a film that's an allegory of 9-11, it's better than viewed as a superhero film. Yeah, well, post 9-11, we should say. It's not about 9-11. It's not about the terrorists bringing down towers. But yes, that culture of fear and how fear can be used to create the wrong reaction. Yeah, I think Nolan was driven by politics in that movie. Yes, and I think thinking about that made me enjoy it more, but not as a superhero film. And so I didn't see The Prestige. I mean, look at this cast. Wolverine and Batman with Alfred and Black <laughs> Widow. You got David Bowie and Gollum in here for fun. I'm surprised the cast drew me in. Christopher Nolan pushed me away. Yeah, it, it is a pretty amazing cast. You know, around the same time this came out, there are two competing, like, magic movies. I think they were separated by a couple of months. There was The Illusionist with Edward Norton, or I guess we're going with Marvel, The Hulk. And that's <laughs> the one I ended up seeing. I was dragged to that by family or friends. I never made it to this one. But I do remember seeing both the trailers, like, before some other film at the same time. Like, two magic films. What, what's up with that? Why are those getting put together? Yeah, the funny way Hollywood works, where, yeah, sometimes we get two meteor movies or Two movies about elephants are two of anything, yeah. Competing studios try to rush their idea. Do you want to be the first one? And you're right. Illusionist did beat Prestige to the punch. I saw them both, and you saw the wrong one. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I don't remember anything about The Illusionist. That's all I can say. It's a very romantic take on it, and I don't think Norton is very good at romance. So I'll leave it at that. But I only saw that movie once. I saw The Prestige. This will be my third viewing of it. I saw it in theaters. I saw it when it came out on DVD six or eight months later. And then I saw it again for this review, as well as read the book, because this is actually based on source material not created by the Nolan brothers. This was written by a, a man in the mid-90s, Christopher Priest. I got questions about that book. So do I. I'm not sure I can answer them. <laughs> it's very different. Structurally, Almost unrecognizable. I got to say, I read 40 pages and didn't think I was reading the same story. I actually double-checked to make sure there wasn't another book called The Prestige about magicians that I should be reading instead because it looked so little like the movie that was in my head. But it ultimately gets to the movie. It's structured in five parts, told with five different narrators, and the fourth part is the part that's mostly the movie. But it takes place in different time zones. You can hear my thoughts. It's over at Books and Nachos. A very different experience. If you're a fan of this movie, I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to go check it out. But an entirely different reaction I had to it than watching this film. And I will say this much, already off the top. I think, yet again, Christopher Nolan is better at adapting the source material than it was in its original inception. I think, much like Insomnia, I thought his remake was a better movie, even though I didn't love the movie. A better movie than the original Norwegian film. I think Prestige the movie, whatever you think about it, you're more likely to like the movie than you would the book. Well then, Jacob, I think you and I will like the book better. I guess we'll see. Because we both preferred the Norwegian film. That is true. But not strongly. Yeah, it, it was just a hair above. But that's the book. Why don't we talk about the movie, Arnie? Give him the plot. We're going to get a linear one this time? No, actually. I went non-linear on this one. I had to do it non-linearly because this story, like magic has three parts or acts. We're told in the movie that in magic, there's first the pledge, where the audience is presented with an ordinary object. Then there's the turn, where that ordinary object becomes extraordinary, usually by disappearing. But then, that's not when the audience applauds. They applaud with the prestige. 
where the object is brought back. So in this film, and this is my interpretation, you guys may disagree of what the three parts are, but I see the turn as the beginning, where Christian Bale's character, Alfred Borden, is a magician arrested for the murder of his competitor, the magician Robert Angier, played by Hugh Jackman. Through flashbacks, we see that the two came up together, working as assistants for a magician named Milton, along with Cutter, the man who makes the magic machines for Milton, played by Michael Caine. Borden wanted to push their tricks and tie a more secure knot in the illusion where a woman, specifically Angier's wife Julia, played by Piper Paraboo, is tied up and put in a tank of water. But during the trick, he changes his knot and the woman cannot get free. She drowns and dies. Angier is heartbroken and swears a vow against Borden. The two part ways and start their own magic acts, competing and one-upping each other. Angier is brought back into the magic game by Cutter, and he even infiltrates one of Borden's shows and shoots off two of Borden's fingers by sabotaging the bullet catch trick. Borden responds with a trick called the Transported Man, where he seems to teleport across the stage. Angier is obsessed with replicating it. He tries with a body double, but Borden gets to the double and makes a public fool of Angier. Privately, the two men aren't doing well either. Borden is married to Sarah, played by Rebecca Hall, and the two have a young daughter, but Sarah is feeling alienated by Borden's constant secrecy. Angier, meanwhile, takes a new assistant, played by Scarlett Johansson, Olivia. She falls in love with him, but rather than find happiness with a new wife, Angier sends her to infiltrate Borden's magic show. She feels betrayed, and so she really does aid Borden, giving Angier a fake journal. And finally it escalates, or takes the turn. Angier kidnaps and buries Borden's machine maker, Bernard Fallon. Angier demands Borden's transported man's secrets, and Borden replies with one word, Tesla. So Angier flies to Colorado to see Nikolai Tesla, played by David Bowie, and offers a fortune for a machine that will allow for actual teleportation, which he actually gets. It was this trick he was performing when Borden supposedly kills him. But now Borden is the one jealous and obsessed. His anger causes his wife to kill herself, and Olivia, with whom Borden was also sleeping, breaks off their relationship. Borden finally disguises himself and infiltrates Angier's show, finding the man dropped into a tank of water and dying. He had no part in it, but his proximity has him convicted for murder. But then the prestige, bringing something back. Angier isn't dead. Tesla's machine is true magic. It would create a clone of Angier. To make it work, Angier had the tank beneath his machine so that the clone, or he hopes it's the clone, is immediately killed upon creation and drowned. Angier was never even his real name. He was Lord Cadlow, a rich man who hid his identity so he could be a magician. With Borden up for murder, Angier returns to his life as Lord Cadlow and goes to disposing the dozens of bodies of his drowned clones. As Lord Cadlow, Angier offers to take in Borden's daughter and raise her in wealth in exchange for Borden's secret of the transported man. But when Borden gives it up, Andrew doesn't even care. He doesn't look. He tears it up, just content to see Borden die. And Borden is hanged, yet he returns as well. It turns out his prestige is his entire life he'd been hiding, living half a life. Borden had an identical twin brother, and they would take turns living as Borden, the other donning makeup to be Bernard Fallon. When one Borden lost two fingers to Andrew, the other had them cut off to match. That was their level of commitment. So when Borden is hanged for Angier's murder, the other Borden actually murders Angier, shooting the magician and regaining custody of his daughter as credits roll.
Yeah, very intricate plot. I had trouble even following what, the way you were describing it. We're going to have to walk through this movie. I think that's a trait, right? We At this point, we've seen a lot of Christopher Nolan movies. Confusion is the name of the game. Having a non-chronological mystery is, I think, his idea of fun. I think that he even speaks about it. There's no commentary track, but in some of the promotional materials, he said that he wanted the process of being a magician to feel like the process he has of being a filmmaker here. And so I do feel like there's autobiographical qualities here as well to discuss as we get into this very difficult-to-discuss meta story. I definitely picked that up. I remember when we did Inception, Stuart, you talked about how that was really about him trying to bring a film to life. And I really did see this as, again, an artist trying to bring something to life that's fabricated and all the tricks you have to pull, you know. One of the things, as we've watched Nolan's films, I first brought it up with The Dark Knight, which is a great film. Love it. But he pulls these tricks to mess with your mind where there's these fallacies and and, and happenstance, things that wouldn't quite make sense if you really thought it out. But I think when you have a great director, a great storyteller, you could pull those tricks more. You really don't see them when you're watching the film the first time, second time, third time. You really got to study it. And I, I feel like that's what this film is getting into is when you're a true master of your craft, you create these tricks. Michael Caine's going to tell us at the end that we want to be fooled. We don't want to believe in the logic kind of storytelling. We want to buy into the magic of art or film or, or whatever we're consuming. Yeah, he definitely has things that he keeps showing us, motifs that keep coming back and going to keep showing you that. And so we focus on that. What's that going to mean? What's it going to transform into? What will it become? That's also, there's a, a lot of misdirects. We're looking at that, so we're not looking at things that should be obvious and become painfully obvious once we know what's going on. I mean, the fact that Christian Bale has a double and that we're seeing him as this Mr. Fallon and as Alfred Borden throughout this movie, interchangeably, one twin and the other, we don't know who's who. One's kind of a sweet twin. You know, it's a classic twin scenario. The good twin and the evil twin, right? It's right out of soap operas. There's only one thing I th- where I could tell the difference and that I caught on the second watching and even then I'd have to sit it down and really go scene by scene to see if there's a chronological reason for this, but one of the twins, he has a little, like, shaved stripe in his eyebrow that I noticed, and and that's the only thing that I noticed where you could tell them apart, but yeah, watching this a second time, so much is told to us. I I mean, we're going to get this Chinese magician and that his whole life is an act that a bird is going to be killed during a magic trick and a young boy's going to go, where's his brother when that bird is brought back? Uh, There's all these things Nolan does, but yes, there is so much misdirect. I feel like the setup for this, it's almost like going back to Insomnia, last week where okay we get this magician there's a lock that was changed cutter who could tell how this trick was performed he can't reveal it because of the magician's code I, I feel like okay we're gonna get this mystery but that's all misdirect that's not really the point to solve this murder it, it's a whole different kind of story yeah when i first watched this movie and i got to the end a lot of it that i had seen immediately flooded back to me and made sense like the old chinese magician who was living a lie his whole life and the way christian bale's character and i just gonna start by saying i hate these names borden and angier these are just (laughs) bad names to say and remember but borden is there just admiring this chinese guy for his level of commitment and he gets it right away too he gets the trick right away Yeah, and explains it to Angier, that he is so committed that he lives this lie anytime he's in public. And I immediately remembered that when it's revealed that this is how Borden is living his life, or half a life, that his entire 
existence, down to his wife and child, don't know that sometimes he's not himself. They can tell, though, but they don't know. And I remember the bird dying, and where is his brother? But then there's some stuff, that ending, I'll just say right now, I hate the movie's ending. And so coming back to it, reluctantly for this review, and just that ending was what was most burned into my mind. So knowing how the movie ended, and now watching it and seeing some of the stuff again, I do catch a lot of the things I missed before, such as the death of the bird and all the parts where it's Angier, will he get his hands dirty? Can he kill a bird to do a trick? Well, later he's going to be killing himself every night, suicide by clone, to do a trick. And it's his descent from being really a good guy. Maybe they're both good guys at the beginning who just are ambitious, and by the end, they're both willing to murder and deceive, and it's an obsessive, destructive story. Kind of a black swan with magic. I remembered from first watching, thinking that Christian Bale was the one we were rooting for. And I couldn't remember why, but I remember thinking, oh, he's the good guy, and Hugh Jackman is the fako, right? He's the one that isn't as good as Christian Bale. We admire Christian Bale because he's the artist. He's the innovator. From the get-go, they're working together in the early days, and he's the one saying, no, you have to push magic. You have to invent new things. You have to come up with new concepts. And Jackman is happy to lounge on ring tricks and old knots. He isn't the innovator. And so I thought this story was telling me he was the bad guy just by that connection. Coming back and watching the nuances of that, I do tend to think that there is no clear-cut good guy and bad guy here, that there's parallels. We're seeing two people that essentially are living similar lives, so similar that they have this obsession with one another that's half love and half hate. It reminds me of Nolan's next film, The Dark Knight. I mean, you almost got a Batman-Joker kind of thing going on here where they're feeding off of each other. And The Following and Insomnia and <laughs> really all of his films have this quality. I think it's in the Nolan Brotherhood itself. One of the curious things I didn't realize until I saw this behind-the-scenes material, but Christopher Nolan, you know, he speaks with a thick English accent. He comes from London. I think of him a certain way. His brother was educated in America. He has no trace of that. He is very much like Jackman in this movie. No accent, a different attitude at all. I almost felt like I was watching a story about the Nolan brothers with Christopher Nolan being Bale and Jonathan Nolan being Angier. Yeah, I was wondering about Jackman. Was he supposed to be from America? He's going to go live in Colorado for a few years later in the film or earlier, depending on the chronology here. But yeah, no accent here. And I tend to side with Bale's character, Borden. But maybe this is, again, Nolan holding up that mirror. Because Jackman, I don't know, he's kind of a dandy. He's the, he's the upper class. We're, literally, we're going to find out he is in the aristocracy. He's, he comes from a rich family. Whereas Borden, he's working class. He doesn't have the flair. He has the better tricks, but he doesn't have the showmanship. But yeah, you get to the end of this film, and who is the good guy? Who is the bad guy? You know, it's going to mirror another duo. There's some screen time, but not a whole lot. It's not a big part of the story, though it plays a big part in the plot. And that's Tesla and Edison. I'm just going to plug this book, ACDC, The Savage Tale of the First Standards War. Great book about that relationship between them and, and how they went back and forth trying to discredit each other. But yeah, this is about duos and who is right, who is wrong. Maybe neither one. It's more about these destructive relationships that go back and forth. Yeah, you talk about the accents, though. Can I just say they should have reversed the casting? Because 
if Bale's Batman voice is bad, his Cockney accent is 10 times worse. His attempt to affect that British Cockney is painful. And Jackman, Australian, I think he could have pulled that off a lot more naturally than Borden does here. Bale is Welsh. First of all, I don't think Bale's accent is bad. I think that it was an affected accent. It sounds silly because it's someone playing a role. And it's not natural, so it sounds off. But I think it was right for the character to sound that way. And I have no problem here with his accent at all. I actually think it's perfectly cast. I find that he does play, believably, a common man with a secret. Whereas Jackman... Yeah, I tend to think of Bale as the better actor. Jackman hasn't done much other than Wolverine at this point. He's a flashy, handsome guy, but does he have the dramatic chops? Isn't he kind of like his character, all surface, all showmanship, but no substance? Bale is the artist, and Jackman is the movie star. I mean, that's the way that I'm seeing it. And their stories are, the way that it's structured, it's very Nolan-like. I mean, we saw it with Memento. We saw it with Insomnia. The way that they cut between these two, it it brings a lot of symmetry here. I mean, from the get-go, what we're watching is two men reading books, essentially. I mean, Christian Bale is in his jail cell reading a diary of Hugh Jackman's character. Meanwhile, in that diary, it's Jackman reading Bale's Book of Magic Secrets, deciphering it, so it's coded, while he's waiting in Colorado to talk to Tesla. Which is the most boring writing ever. I'm reading a book. Let me write about reading a book so somebody can read my book about reading a book. It's implausible that someone would journal about journals. I do agree with you there, Arnie, but I do want to credit Nolan with the following. I said I got confused. I didn't think you quite got the language of jumping around in time. He's got that down. I mean, he had it down in Memento, but here he's really ramped it up. I feel like we're jumping all over. We're doing symmetry, but it's all working. I'm not confused here. And so I do want to credit Nolan for being able to juggle all these balls and, and keep them up in the air and keep it clear storytelling. I don't think it was as clear as Insomnia and Memento were. Insomnia is pretty straightforward, but... Yeah. This one, I think, is just some of the jumping around and the fact that it's a lot like Memento in that certain timelines are moving forward while other timelines are moving backward. It was confusing to me when Angier was reading Borden's journal as compared to when Borden was reading Angier's journal. I'm like, how did Borden get the journal? And we finally find out later how he got the journal. It was really confused me quite a bit. We knew early on that Christian Bale is in jail for killing Hugh Jackman. We see in the opening montage very clearly that he is there at the magic trick when Jackman drops into the tank and drowns and is now standing trial And Michael Caine, Jackman's assistant, is up there saying this man is responsible, even though he wasn't even backstage to see it. Everyone is ready to accuse Bale. Do you think he's guilty at the beginning of this story? I took it as guilty because that's how Nolan framed it. And again, early on in the story, I don't know the mechanics. I don't get the jumping around. I don't get what Nolan's really going for here. So I'm just I'm buying everything at surface level. So. I see Borden in front of this glass case filled with water with Angier drowning, and so I'm buying it at this point, and that's the mystery, you know. A magician that knows what could have happened, but he can't reveal it because of the magician's code. And that's what I was buying the film as. Here's what happened between Angier and Borden. And I didn't believe it even on the first watching. I 
knew Bale as coming off of Batman. I didn't believe he'd immediately be a murderer. And I figured this movie would have some kind of twist. So, no, I didn't buy it. What is just a little bit tricky to understand on a second viewing, knowing that Angier is not really dead, any scene we see for the majority of this movie that has Hugh Jackman in it is a flashback. We are seeing before this supposed murder takes place. Right. And so that helps to keep track of it because knowing that he was alive coming back to this movie, and it's been, what, five years or more since I've seen it, but coming back to it knowing he was alive actually made it harder for me to keep track of the fact that every Hugh Jackman scene is a flashback, except for the very, very end. Right. We get lost in the time frame. And I think, again, look at following, look at Memento. I think we're encouraged to do so. I think the fun of a Nolan movie is to be distracted and to have that frazzlement. To not know where you are is a correct feeling to have here. I will say this. If you came in reading the book, you would be very surprised because this is not in the story at all. What happens in the story is that Borden does go backstage and unplugs the transportation device mid-transportation. And it does horrible damage to Angier and he dies from it. And that is a fact. And so you would be very confused that the dunk tank was in here at all. All of this is an invention of Christopher Nolan, bringing it back to a woman that drowned in the dunk tank and this being poetic justice by Angier, because basically Angier not only wants to frame this guy for murder, but he wants to do it in a way that lets him remind him of the hurt that he first inflicted. And that comes pretty quickly. We see pretty early on in the flashbacks that Christian Bale's character insists on tying tighter knots on the assistant than she's going to be able to get out of in the water tank trick. Do you think it was Angier's plot all along to have Borden framed for his murder? Because how could he ever have known Borden was going to break into the basement right during one of those tricks? I thought it was a happy accident. No, absolutely not. He knew that if he gave 100 performances, like every other magic show that he's thrown, that this character would go on stage in disguise and do something. He knew it. He knew that this guy would not be able to accept this show closing without him figuring out how the trick was done. I do think this is where, once you get past the misdirection and start looking at the film, you see the things Nolan maybe doesn't want you to see. Throughout the film, each of them are sabotaging each other's tricks in front of crowds because they just happen to get picked as a volunteer. Now, they're very good with the fake mustaches and wigs to disguise themselves. Well, keep in mind, who's to say that there hasn't been hundreds of performances that they've sat in the audience and not been called up? I mean, I think that that happens. We're shown the example of when they finally get on stage, but it's not like they're always the first one picked. I don't think that's happenstance. I think it's inevitable that they'd wind up on stage. And I just don't see any way that Angier could have made sure that he was going into the basement at the time, finding the body, being discovered. I took this as Angier was doing the ultimate trick and going to be the best magician. Nothing in this movie tells me that this was a plot to kill Borden. What tells me it was a plot, that I caught it the second time, is when he pulls this trick and Borden falls for it and goes backstage, goes underneath, Angier doesn't pop up, which is weird. He had to have split-second reflexes because the whole thing was he was on the balcony within a second after disappearing. So I guess every night for up to 100 nights, he was like waiting for that last second to see if they could hear screaming or something from 
underneath the stage so he knew not to pop up, or maybe he noticed Borden walk up on stage this time to inspect. I'm confused by your question. What do you mean by popping up? Well, he would disappear in the machine and then pop up on the balcony. That was the trick. But when he framed Borden for murder, he didn't pop up because he was supposed to be dead. How did he know not to pop up within that split second to pull off this trick? Oh, I see. Yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that, but that, I guess, would be a, a plot concern. Again, though, it's not ruining my fun. I am choosing to be fooled. I, I'm going along with this. I see these as now I'm catching the misdirects the second time around. But it's not ruining my enjoyment. I like the metaphor Nolan's telling me. I think what you could say is that he recognized the disguise when the guy got up on stage. And I guess if he knew that he was backstage, he could presume that this was the night not to appear in the spotlight when it's over. I don't know. This is a quibble. If it's a plot flaw, it's too minor for me to care. But the point is, is that it most certainly is revenge. We have to know that there's a direct link to the fact that Jackman's wife died in the same tank that he now is found dead in, and that is going to send Borden up the river. I mean, that is poetic justice. We know that that is not coincidence. That feels engineered. We must presume that there's something suspicious about Jackman being dead. We don't want to believe that he is. We want to believe that Bale is a good guy and not a killer, and we want to believe that Jackman is going to somehow come back from the dead to have the final laugh. Now, you talk about Jackman's wife being killed there, Piper Paraboo, and Angier, all he wants to know is what knot did Borden tie? It seems pretty clear to me that Borden is tying the tighter knot because he starts to tie it and then he undoes it and Piper nods as if to say, yes, go ahead, and he ties a different knot. Now, I understand that there's two Bordens, and so if you ask one Borden, which knot did you tie? He may honestly not know because he didn't tie any knot that night. But later he goes, I've had this conversation with both halves of myself. You know, it's like both of them have talked it out. They don't know which knot they tied. Why do they not know which knot they tied? It's quite clearly to me, the audience member, he tied the tighter knot and caused her death. Yeah, and I think that's the way we're to take it. I think that the evil twin, that's what I'm going to call him, evil Borden, tied the tougher knot because he's the one that wanted to progress magic. He wanted to do the thing that hadn't been done before, and someone died for it. I don't think he meant to kill her. I think he just wanted to have a better illusion, and the consequences were that she didn't get out in time. She drowned. But the other one is the one writing in the journal. I don't think he does know, and I don't think that any time that that character is asked, I think he's answering honestly. I don't think he knows what evil twin Borden did. The one that gets shot for it, because the first payment for this, for killing his wife, is that they're going to finally do the bullet catch trick that Evil Twin was so eager to do, and guess who's firing the gun? And guess what's in the gun? A real bullet this time, yes. Jackman is going to get revenge by taking his fingers, however, he's taking the fingers of the good twin. He didn't get revenge on the guy that killed his wife. But he has no way to know that, and truthfully, because they're living half a life... He kind of did. I mean, what hurts one hurts both because the other one can't seem to have it. And we find out at the very end, it goes so far as even the good twin has his fingers cut off to match. No, the evil twin. One of them! Fuck it! <laughs> no, I think it matters. I think it's important to keep track. Yeah, this is something I tried to track. I couldn't. But it does seem that one of the twins is more ambitious than the others. There's an apology scene where... 
because he took it too far. So I did get a sense of that. I'd have to watch it a third time and, and really track their movements to keep them apart. It's emotional. I don't think it's supposed to be physical. We get it because of the wife character. Eventually, Borden is going to settle down with Sarah. Evil twin, evil Borden, has no interest in love or anything ordinary. Marriage is... How dull is that? I want to be an artist. I want to spend all my time pushing and pushing and pushing. I don't have the constitution to share a life with anybody else. But then he sleeps with Scarlett Johansson. No, Good Twin does that. No, Good Twin stays married. Good Twin loves his wife. Evil Twin sleeps with ScarJo. No, they both sleep with ScarJo. Yeah, I got the sense that they just switch randomly so you can never be on to them. So when whoever gets to shack up that night, whoever got to be bored in that day, gets to shack up with whoever. I think that's the case with the wife, but when the Scarlett Johansson character of Olivia comes into this, it becomes different. I think it's made very clear at the end when all is revealed during the prestige. Evil twin fell in love with ScarJo, which is why evil twin... There's the scenes with Sarah where Sarah asks her husband or asks Borden to say he loves her, and she goes, that's not true today, or that is true today. So she can tell when they switch, but... What they're saying is good twin loves Sarah, evil twin did fall in love, but with Olivia. So they each had their own girl. I don't think it's that neat. And I think you could make just as much justification from their admittance in the final scene that they swept so often as part of the game that no one knew when one was one and one was the other. But Sarah does know. Sarah can tell when he says, I love you, whether he means it or not. And that's what drives her to kill herself, is that she can't deal with the schizophrenia of having a lover that's hot and cold so often. I even wondered if she knew that there were twins, because we find out that she was supposed to see Scarlett Johansson character, yes. but she ends up killing herself to tell her a secret. And I thought, maybe that's a secret. She knew there were two of them. She says that towards the end, she's there yelling at evil twin, saying, I know what you are, and he's telling, shut up, and good one is having to play Fallon and comfort the daughter in covering her ears. Does Good Twin go along with this? There's a scene we'll find Angier gets a double trying to replicate this transporting man trick, and Borden goes to the double and says, he's going to end up controlling you. Is that the Good Twin, or is that what has happened to this Good Twin? He is under the control of this bad twin now, and that's why he continues to go along with this. Well, it would be convenient to say it's a malicious plot, so let's, let's give it to evil Borden to do to undermine Angier. But what you've established is what I think is really neat about this story, and it's a Nolan trait. It's the shadow self. It's the idea that there's someone living the same life in parallel to yours. We saw it very specifically in Insomnia, the way that Robin Williams killed the murder victim, the way that Al Pacino accidentally killed his murder victim. They played off of that. Here, yes, both men will lose their wives because of each other. Both men are going to get a evil double. I, I mean, I don't know if you can call Angier's double evil, but he does try to blackmail him, and he is a out-of-work drunk that no one likes. I do have to say, though, I like Jackman's performance more when he's the evil drunk double than when he's playing Angier. Yeah, it is a lot more fun. It feels a lot more Jackman because yes. Jackman's a classically trained stage actor, you know, song and dance man. If you ever saw his TV show where he sang on it, it was kind of amusing. God help you. <laughs> it was only on for like four episodes but seeing him play that role 
I think it's more natural to him and a little less angsty. They did fool me, though, with that double. They put a fake nose on him. I had to keep looking, so they did try to disguise that it was Jackman. I like that little touch. Yeah, no, I did like him, too. I feel like we got to see a lot of that double. His name is Gerald Root, and we get to know a little bit of him. They're hiding the fact that Borden has his assistant, Mr. Fallon, and that, did you guys pick up on first viewing? I can't remember. But they misdirect so often. Usually when they show Fallon, he's with the cute little girl, and she's the misdirection. You're always looking at the daughter. You're never paying attention to the fact that the man standing next to her outside the jail cell is, in fact, Christian Bale with some putty on his face and uh, mustache. They kind of cheat the editing of this, though. When they show Fallon, they often show him from behind, or they show him from yes. the neck down. When they show the face, it's very quick cut. It actually is cut faster than anything else. It's like they filmed it one way, and then in editing, Nolan or somebody else is like, that's way too fucking obvious. And so they cut it to cheat. It's a magic trick. I mean, it, it is cheat by nature. I mean, yeah, come on, Arnie. The difference between a magic trick and a film is a magic trick, you have to misdirect my eyes. You have to make me look away. You bring out somebody on stage to make me look. In film, you can use digital fakery, and editing to force my eyes somewhere. There's more skill in a stage magician than in a filmmaker for a trick. Okay, yeah, it's easier to trick people with editing than it is when you're watching on stage, but it doesn't change the fact that Nolan is, yeah, misdirecting. He doesn't want you to look at what is obvious. And so every time Fallon's on screen, something more interesting is going on that keeps your eyes away. And then, yeah, they only cut to his face when they absolutely, positively have to and only then for very quick amounts of time. I don't know if I ever knew. I don't think I knew, and I think I was a little bit pissed when it came out. It wasn't the thing that made me feel it was a cheat, but because Fallon never talked, Fallon wasn't a character I paid any attention to. I never saw Fallon as, to Borden, what Cutter was to Angier. And that's what he's supposed to be, but because he never talks, because he's always walking out of the room... When it's finally revealed, it's like, all right, he was there the whole time. It's like a murder mystery where the butler did it. But the way it's done, I paid no attention to him at all. Once I caught on what was going on with the story, once Angier meets Tesla, I didn't think it was a twin. I thought maybe it was a double. We're misdirected that there's going to be a, a previous machine that Tesla made. You know, I look at his face. I'm like, okay, that's fake mustache, fake sideburns. But they still got me. I didn't get the twin aspect. I, I caught on that it's got to be another version of Bale, just not the way I thought. That's exactly right. Is that even if you get it on first viewing, you're like, ah, that's Christian Bale. And they don't want me to know that. You don't know why. We do have, ironically enough, Michael Caine calling it out early. Everyone is like, this guy has a trick that's his bread and butter that no one can understand how he did it. The transporting man, he walks into a cabinet. He bounces a ball. As it bounces across stage, the door slams. The other cabinet opens. He pops out and grabs that ball. How did he do it? Michael Caine knows instantly. He's like, he's got a double. And he's right. And what's the nature of obsession is the answer is right under your nose, but you refuse to see it. Jackman is told from the get-go, this is how he's doing it, but he can't believe that's the answer. And he will destroy his life and the other guy's life trying to get an answer that he'll never get. 
what kind of binds these men, they have all of these parallel existence. They each have this version of this transporting man trick. They each have their own assistants, Fallon or Cutter or their different lovers and all of that. But they share. They share a lover. And I think that's what makes Scarlett Johansson's role unique and interesting in this. Ultimately, it's a very small part. Probably too small for an actress of her caliber at this point, although all she had been doing was The Island and some Woody Allen movies by 2006. I know I first became aware of her with Lost in Translation, but when did she become a star? Because she obviously wasn't one at this point. She might have been a name, but she wasn't the cover of every magazine at this point, right? No, but she was the cover of Maxim, and I actually think that that was what was pushing her star meter was the fact that she was labeled by Maxim Magazine the most desirable woman in the world. She was riding the it girl status. A lot of times, you know, people just decide, you're the it girl, and for about two years, they devote a lot of ink to you, and then when you don't materialize into a thing, well, they move on. Just ask Julie Ormond. Who? (laughs) But... Sometimes they stick, and it did stick for Scarlett Johansson. She did become much bigger after this, but yeah, Lost in Translation put her on the map. This was sort of a mid-career, I'm visible, but I haven't proved myself. I remember thinking, yeah, she wasn't particularly good in this. Coming back to it, I actually think she is. I think I actually underestimated her worth when I originally saw the film. You know, I find it interesting to go back and watch certain films that she is in in smaller parts, like, I mean, there's The Island, there's In Good Company. You know, she is a good actress. She has been. I haven't seen her before Lost in Translation. I still need to see things like Eight-Legged Freaks. Even in Ghost World, where she's very young, she was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think she does really well here. She's able to pull off the period better than I would have expected her to. To me, she feels very modern, so to go back and do this... I guess she did very well with Hitchcock, though. Girl with a Pearl Earring was a prestige little period piece she had done. She got some acclaim for I think she was considered a pretty face who was a good enough actress to get through it. But I don't think anyone was celebrating her as an actress yet. I don't think she had that kind of notoriety. She was celebrated as being beautiful, but not being talented yet. And maybe that's just the sexism of the industry. But I remember falling for that sexism. I didn't think she was much of an actress watching this. I thought, oh, couldn't they have gotten someone better? But coming back to it, she's good. No, she's definitely good here. And I think her part is interesting because it really underlines the tragedy of Hugh Jackman's character is that, yes, he lost his wife. And that is sad. And I do feel for him. In some ways, watching it a second time, I'm on his side when he wants to get revenge on Christian Bale. Because, yeah, Christian Bale did kill his wife. Whether he meant to or not, he did tie that knot. But here's the thing. Now he's got Scarlett Johansson, right? (laughs) She's so much better than Piper Pierre Boo. And she loves him. And she's made his show better through her suggestions. She's made him a better magician. She has helped build up his career. And he would rather throw her away to find out Bale's secret than to have that family that he lost. I think it's terribly ironic. I think the line that makes me turn on Angier and realize he is not our hero, because you said you thought Bale was the hero, and I, coming into this the first time, thought Jackman was the hero and Bale the bad guy. And the line watching it this time that makes me realize neither's a good guy is when Angier says, I don't care about my wife, I care about his secret. I mean, 
it's gone beyond revenge for his wife. He no longer cares about his wife. There is no love. There's only hate. Yeah, no, it's obsession now. That's all he cares about is the secret to this trick. And it does remind me of other Nolan things. I mean, you know, he had already caught his wife's killer, and yet he was still going and killing guys and accusing them in a memento. And yeah, that following, that whole idea about building the fake box to make him fall in love with this fantasy woman. We have seen these themes play out before. I do think that definitely I feel like I'm in Nolan's hands. Having watched all of these other movies now, it definitely, we can see the signature, right? Oh, definitely. Very Nolan-feeling film, but I feel like he's taken it one step further by making it kind of meta, by making a film, you know, magic tricks is a language for art and wanting to be fooled. I, I really feel he's taken us into his mind as the creator now. Yeah, and I definitely feel Nolan's fingerprints all over this. I mean, we haven't really talked too much about the look of this film, but it is, again, gorgeously shot. I mean, Nolan, you mentioned when we were talking about him before, Stuart, you compared him to Kubrick, and I agree in this case. It's a gorgeous film, really wonderfully shot, and exceptionally cold, with no characters you necessarily like. I mean, these are thin characters. What do they do? What do they want other than revenge? If you take away revenge from these characters, what are they? They're nothing. These are flat one-dimensional characters. No, no, they're very complicated people, but they have a one-track mind. You cannot call these thin characters. We spend so much time on their obsession. They're obsessive characters. Yes, and we spend no time on anything but their obsession. Bale's obsession is art. I totally get what he wants to do. He wants to push the boundaries. What's ironic about it is that the poser is the one that has the real breakthrough. And all through his own devising, he thinks he's setting this guy up to go spend money foolishly in America on Tesla on something that will never work. And lo and behold... You ought to know when you send someone to David Bowie, you're going to get some cool results. <laughs> Shit, Scarlett Johansson recorded an album with David Bowie, and I love it. This man could do anything. I'm a fan of Tesla. I don't buy into all the mythology about him. So when I found out there's this whole Tesla subplot in this film, I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. Not expecting it. And then David Bowie walks out. I'm like, oh, genius. It is. It truly is. I like, And I forgot. Even on this viewing, I forgot David Bowie was in this movie. And my God, when he comes into the picture and the way he does in the, in the crackle of the lightning and all of that, I mean, it is his finest screen performance. Here's a chameleon that has spent his entire career inventing musical video performance. He really is a pioneer of music videos. And yeah, it's such a delight to see. It's such a great use of his star power as this weird recluse genius who, I mean, let's get into it. How much can we buy into Tesla's genius? as inventing this box. Because what we're going to be asked to believe is that Hugh Jackman orders a transportation device because he believes Bale bought one from the guy previously. But Tesla can do it. Tesla is in hiding at this point. Edison's guys are trying to find his secrets or are they sniffing around town? No, they're trying to discredit him because they're competitors. They have different types of electricity. And Jefferson wants him pushed out. And really, it worked because Tesla is a person, a real historical figure, not fictitious, who I never knew of until playing the video game Command and Conquer Red Alert, where you got to put up Tesla coils, which were kick-ass <laughs> electricity weapons. And I'm like, who the fuck is Tesla? And I started doing my own research. And there's a movement right now to try to get Tesla taught in American schools. Personally, I think they should teach anything in American schools. <laughs> 
Well, you know, it worked. I have gone out and bought a book on Tesla. I don't know much about Tesla other than, yeah, the whole ACDC thing and that the rivalry with Edison. But yeah, I want to know more. When David Bowie is, you know, joking about first time they call me a genius, second time they ask me to retire, I don't know what that means. But the way he delivers it, I want to know this cat's story. I think David Bowie is a fascinating figure. I think Tesla is a fascinating figure. I just think the idea of working in a true historical figure into this mythical story is fun. It suddenly has given this movie an energy and a surprise that I just wasn't expecting. And all this Colorado stuff, it is it is my favorite stuff in the movie. As for Bowie, I didn't even recognize this was him the first time I watched it. Look in the eyes, the eyes, they're different colors. Does Bowie have different colored eyes? Yes! I like his music, but I don't know a whole lot about Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, it's not fabricated. He really does have two different colored eyes. He will survive the 28 Days Later plague. But he's giving kind of a Christopher Walken performance here. Just the way he delivers his lines. I was I was getting early Walken. I would have thought it was Walken if he was older. You know, the great thing about making this Tesla and Edison, they don't go too much into it. You get hints of it, and I get it. That's not the point of the story, but it really does mirror Angier and Borden. You know, Tesla, he was the crazy thinker that wanted to take risk, and Edison was the shrewd businessman. He didn't create a whole lot. He bought a lot of patents. He got other scientists to make stuff for him and took the credit. I mean, th- that's the narrative anyway. Mm-hmm. So I- if you know that story, it really does play into what you're seeing in this movie. Stuart, does the Tesla Edison play more of a part in the book, or is that brought in for this movie? Because it does seem... So strange that we've gone from magic and now we're into a science fiction film. I won't say it plays a big part of the story. No, definitely not. It's only one-fourth of the story and no more than it is here. In fact, I think Nolan has expanded on it a little bit, or at least by breaking up the movie the way it is, we build up the Tesla a lot more quickly. I mean, one of the early scenes of the movie is of Angier arriving in Colorado, seeing the streetlights of Colorado Springs, trying to get up the hill and being confronted by Andy Serkis, of all people, in an electric fence. Not a CGI character this time. Yeah, I was impressed. I was like, no mocap suits to now. What's funny is his eyes and his smile still look like Gollum. (laughs) (laughs) Or Caesar. (laughs) It did, kind of, but he's great here. It's such a small part, it's almost a throwaway. You didn't need someone of his caliber, but he was really fun to watch. Well, he was doing 13 going on 30 around this time. He wasn't that caliber. He was well beyond Lord of the Rings. And not doing that many other jobs except in mocap suits. (laughs) Yeah, I guess any chance to not have to put on the dots is a reason to do the work. And to work with Nolan, I'm sure... This was fun. I mean, who wouldn't want to hang out in Colorado with David Bowie? But, all right, I got a couple of questions here. First of all, Angier goes to see Tesla because Borden says that's the secret. When other Borden is buried alive, Borden gives Angier the answer of Tesla. Was this just random that Borden just so happened to send Angier to the one mad scientist crazy enough to be able to invent a cloning device no it's not totally random they have a scene that establishes this that tesla came to london to try and demonstrate his coils and that bale was in the audience jackman was in the audience jackman sees bale there bale sees jackman there and that's it so we think that there may be a relationship between bale and tesla that could have come out of that moment and because Bale knows that he was seen there. It's a credible way of sending him away. Yes, it sends him far, far away, sends him to the other continent, and it makes him spend money to try and get an answer that he doesn't believe 
I guess he thought the guy was a phony, too. There are people in the audience, probably Edison discreditors, that are saying the coils are dangerous, everyone needs to leave. They actually are Edison discreditors because one of those actors shows up later pulling up in Colorado, and the guy says it's Edison's people. Right, exactly. They're there saying it's unsafe, everyone leave, we're about to die. I do kind of agree with you, Arnie. Like, I wish there was a stronger tie to why Borden would choose Tesla. Like, is there something, you know, I don't really believe in the science. I believe everything's illusion, that it's all misdirection and tricks. So yeah, I'm going to go waste his time with this fraud. I wish there was a little bit more there. Again, I don't need a whole lot more, just a little bit more why Tesla was picked. Why it does seem kind of like a crazy idea that I'll eventually trick my competitor to go spend two years and all his money giving it to this scientist to try to make a fake machine. And I think it's an irony. I think this movie is filled with ironies. And the irony is, is that we've been told that Borden is uh, a lousy showman. He's got the mind to come up with the tricks, but he's not very good at presenting them. He went to Tesla to get his showmanship. Angier goes to Tesla to get the actual device, to get the invention itself. They both get different things from Tesla, but they both take from Tesla, and I think that's important. And, okay, you've got this movie about old-timey magicians. It's a period piece. And I come in with a certain expectation that if you're going to watch a movie about magicians, especially when you're showing us that they do disappearing bird tricks by killing birds, you know, it's almost like those 90s. Remember the behind the magic specials when they'd have the guy <laughs> in the mask showing you how magicians did all their tricks and that? I thought it was kind of like that. Then you introduce real world figures. You're grounding this movie even further. The reason I had a violently angry reaction with this movie the first time I watched it is this Tesla plot twist. The prestige is that it's real magic. Tesla in the 1899, over a hundred years ago, created a cloning teleportation device. All of a sudden, fooled you, you're watching a fucking science fiction movie. There is nothing in this movie. Watching it the second time, I'm looking for any clue to tell you, by the way, we're not actually in the real world. We're watching a sci-fi film. We're watching some steampunk bullshit. It's not there. When did you guys realize it was a science fiction film? Because I refused to believe it until the final prestige where they go, yeah, this is a science fucking fiction film. You wasted two hours. Well, it is there. Cutter tells the judge early on that the sad part about the box is that there's no trick to it at all. Cutter is always telling the truth. I think it's important to realize that. Cutter knows the truth, and he's always telling the truth. No, he doesn't know the truth when he's talking to the judge. He finds out the truth after the trial. No, the judge says, hey, we'll go into closed quarters so you can tell me the secret. Right. That's not before he knows the truth, because why would he testify against Borden if he knew the truth? He doesn't know Angier's alive at that point. He doesn't know the cloning. You should always listen to Cutter, because when he's telling you things, it's usually true. And he is telling you that he knows that that device is real magic made by a, a wizard that is far beyond the tricksters that I work for. That's a winking sly, there's no trick there at all. That's not telling you you're in a sci-fi film. And yes, Later on, there's one guy who turns to Jackman and goes, you have real magic. I just think he's gotten that good at it. When does this movie tell me that it is going to defy all laws of space, time, and physics? In Colorado. In Colorado, when they go and try to make the hatch, I mean, they tell you in the first shot, there's a field full of hats. Yes, exactly, Stuart. That field of hats, and then when they show that hat, they try to transport it, I'm like, 
okay, it's duplicating. And it's going off in this field. They don't know that yet. And I got that. But I'm like, there's got to be more to it because we're watching a real fucking movie with historical figures. I just thought that was part of the trick. I couldn't believe they were actually putting us in a science fiction film. And that is such a fucking cheat. That is such a fucking cheat. I get that you're angry about it at first. I think (laughs) I was too. The first time I saw it, I'm like, that sits with me strange. When I read the book, it sat with me even stranger. I got to say, I didn't even understand what I was reading when I read the book. But I can say this. If you watch the movie a couple times, and I'm betting your second viewing was less abrasive, if no more welcoming, you realize that they're telling you that the innovation is there, that there are these leaps that happen. And yeah, I think they establish it enough for me to buy into it. I don't know enough about Tesla and his lore to know that he could invent something like this. We all know Gene Roddenberry did in the 60s in Star Trek, but I'll go with it for the myth. I'll go with the idea that David Bowie can do it. Watching it the second time, what I watched most closely for was, is there a tell to tell me that this shouldn't piss me off? It's not there. I mean, that's a strange way of putting it. They tell you in the middle of the movie, in one hour in, they tell you this is science fiction. Yeah, and maybe because I am a Tesla fan, even though I don't buy into everything people claim that he invented. I mean, if you see the vampire, Jim Jarmusch's vampire film, Only Lovers Left Alive, there's a whole thing about Tesla and this kind of wireless electricity, and there's a big myth about it. So I was able to accept this as going to become a science fiction film because I know Tesla's reputation. I know about all the things he supposedly invented. So I guess if you're a fan of Tesla, it might not be as hard to buy into. The joke is that when they bought Edison's desk and pulled it out, there was no inventions in it. There was no secrets left to be found. But Tesla's all got buried, that we don't know all the things that he invented. It's shrouded in mystery. Therefore, there's room to play with it. So is it likely that he invented anything like this? No. Can I go with it for the sake of this mystery movie? I think that it is hard to accept. I can feel your pain, Arnie, because I felt it too. When I saw this movie at first, I thought this was a flaw. Now, I don't. It is a flaw that they couldn't come up with a way to keep this in the reality that they tell, that they have to go to science fiction cloning. You know, you say we see hats, okay? They make a lot of hats. We see cats, okay? Cats look all alike to me if they have the same color pattern. When you tell me that you're going to make a clone of Angier, and there's another one right there with the exact same memories, same clothes, same everything, and this is in 1899. No, it is a flaw. You're right. It was less abrasive the second time because I've had five years to live with this. But now watching this movie is like getting back together with that girlfriend who cheated on you. You may be able to have a pleasant dinner, but you're always going to remember the pain of how they cheated. It's not a cheat. It's a cheat. It is a cheat. You cannot say it's not a cheat. It is a cheat to set an 1899 film with real historical figures and introduce cloning. You could have a science fiction film in any period, in my opinion. I don't know why. Perhaps you feel cheated because you thought this was a magic film and it changed into something different. To me, again, these are two different men going about the same trick, exploring these different paths. You have the showman, you have the artist. You have this cold science, and you have this guy who's devoted his whole life to this one trick, to build up this whole trick. To me, that is about the poetic message of this film, about where obsession takes you and the lengths you're willing to go. And that would be great if the movie stayed just about that. The second viewing, I was getting far more into the story of obsession and duplicity until they introduced cloning. Until they involved actual duplicity. 
And, no, until it became the Star Trek 1960s Evil Kirk episode where the transporter created a duplicate. I'm going to say a couple things. First, I like steampunk. I like H.G. Wells' version of science fiction. It rarely has come to the screen well when I think about Sky Captain or Shadow or League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or all of the attempts to do it, usually largely very unsatisfying Wild Wild West. I think this is the best example of steampunk that I can think of because they don't push it beyond. I don't believe that the trappings, they don't have things that aren't of the era. It's just unlikely that Tesla came up with something that nobody else has come up with in the last 120 years. And if they'd set it up, if we had seen a few things early on that nobody else could build, if we'd seen steampunky, futuristic, fantastical inventions early on, then I'd be like, okay, they've established what kind of film they're making. I'll go with the clones. They did. They had a whole mountainside covered in light that was being powered by the Earth. Yeah, but supposedly Tesla really did that. But they were building up sort of an exoticness. I mean, nobody else can do that. I mean, that's they were building up the idea that this man could go beyond. Now, I mentioned in the 2001 podcast that the monolith makes an appearance in this film. It was a joking reference, but only half joking. I do feel like Nolan is making a very Kubrickian reference with this box. It suggests very much the same things that the monolith does. The whole idea of jumping in an evolution. In 2001, it was quite literal. It was ape holding bone to men in spaceships. Here, what he's suggesting is the idea of going from 19th century, turn of the 20th century industrialization to the next level, to science. And that this box, this monolith, this pyramid represents that transformation. I can go with it in that respect. By making that reference, by telling me in this way, I completely accept it. It gives the box something really creepy. I mean, we've seen Nolan boxes before. It was in the following. But to me, Nolan really is taking idea that Kubrick started and introducing it into this film. And I, I like that. I feel like that is a fine idea to bring in at this point in the film. I don't feel cheated by this. And it was in the book. I mean, if you're going to adapt the book, even if you hate it, this is in the book. You can always change a bad ending. Look at Watchmen. There's no giant squid. It's not the ending. It's literally a fourth of this novel. But I think there's an interesting concept introduced from the cloning because what they never answer, they bring it up, but they never answer it, is now when the movie ends, the Angier who's still alive, is it the real Angier or is it a clone Angier? Well, Tesla does answer it. He says they're all real. Angier asks, which one's my hat? And he says they all are. I mean, I take it that Angier that is duplicated has the memories is the same as year at that moment of duplication. Yeah, and I do think that we're dealing with shadow selves. They tried to tell us the same thing is true for Borden, that there's two clones and that they're switching roles so often. Maybe they're both a little evil and good. I've labeled one evil and good because it's easier to talk about that way. But yeah, maybe they're both Angier. Maybe one is no more him than the other. But my take on it is, is that the guy that got into the box doesn't transport. That a clone is created on the other side, and therefore it is the clone, it is the artificial, it is the second generation that is picking up the gun and killing him, or putting the tank of water underneath him. That he literally, in order to do his magic trick, the pain that he has to endure 
is to die every night that he does it in order to achieve that trick. That's what I guessed as well, but there's no way to know. That could be a very interesting sci-fi film. It's completely glossed over here. It's mentioned in passing that he hopes he's the one who lives. He doesn't even know if he's his own clone or not. But it's all a very different movie than the one we were watching for the first 90 minutes. Okay. Does that damage? Yes, it does, because it wasn't set up. It is a cheat. It's not a trick. You didn't fool me the way that a good movie fools me, like Kaiser Soze, the true identity of him. Because you couldn't have guessed that there was a clone machine in the beginning means that it cheated. To me, it means that it's not all about the trick. I'll go with you on that far. It's not about the trick. To me, what it suggests at this point, well, as I said, is that we've been watching characters that have been dealing with surface-level things, and now we're talking about a true evolutionary jump. We're talking about something bigger than anybody's been able to do in the industrial age. We're talking about a moment in time where man jumps. Which has nothing to do with the obsession of these two characters and their rivalry, though. And it's not even necessary to tell that story. To me, it is because I think that this movie is about that. I do feel like it is about capturing an age, and I do feel like it does so quite well in in an unusual way. I mean, I can't think of too many period films that do take on this kind of science fiction and yet still feel like, yeah, Merchant and Ivory could have made this. Yeah, I don't feel like this is a film about magic. I I feel that is the method they use to get into some deeper themes, uh, duplicity, all these different things we've been talking about. It's not a straight magic film. Not I go into this, oh, okay, I thought it was a crime mystery that involved magicians and it continues to evolve throughout. I mean, if this is a film about the Victorian age, yeah, that was a time, the Industrial Revolution all these changes going on. I don't think this is a magic film. I I think that's how they sold it, so I can see why you're angry, Arnie. But again, knowing Tesla, seeing all this evolve, it fits the themes that we're seeing here. It should be added that I'm a magic fan. I've gone and seen magic shows, Copperfield and those. I watched all the behind the magic specials on Fox. I enjoy magic movies. When they come out with Now You See Me Part 2, I'll be pushing for that retrospective. Ugh. (laughs) But this one, yeah, you sold yourself as one thing, you became another, it's a cheat. And on a second viewing, knowing that this movie's going to cheat me, I'm able to appreciate some of the performances, some of the themes a little bit more. But I will never get past the fact that this turn of events in the plot does not fit the movie that they'd been giving us for the first 90 or so minutes, and it is a cheating way to push forward that story and to give Angier his double. Despite the fact that this is Act 2 and we've been told Act 2 is called The Turn, you don't like The Turn, well, this is where everyone disappears. Literally, Sarah hangs herself, Olivia walks away, she's not the assistant for the trick when Borden gets up on stage. She perhaps would have recognized him and stopped him, but she's not there too. Everyone disappears, and most of all, Borden disappears. I thought if this was about magicians and we've seen him play with the guards and we know he can get out of binds and all of that, that he had a way of getting out of the gallows, that when they're walking him up there to the noose, that he was going to survive it. He does, but it wasn't the victory I thought. I thought it would be a clear cut, ha ha ha, no one got hung or Jackman's going to be in the noose or or something. 
I really didn't understand upon first viewing that he was prepared to end his own life to keep the illusion going. That evil twin would carry on the life that he wishes and should have had. Even though I knew there was a double by this point, didn't know it was a twin, I just thought he had doubled himself at some point with the Tesla machine. I did think he was going to get away somehow. He, they keep making reference that he escaped jail before. Yeah, he's playing with the guards. I was expecting that last final trick about him getting out of the jail. Yeah, I figured that would come too. It's the evil twin that hangs, right? No, no, that's the point of it all. Is he's in jail. They have a final scene together. He's behind bars. You know, he tosses him the ball and all of that. But that's what's so painful. The one that hated the family, that never wanted to be married to Sarah, that doesn't give a crap about the daughter, he's stuck with that duty. And no, the kindly one, the caring one, he's the one going upriver. I took it the other way. So did I, but again, it's hard to track him. Yeah, but at the end, when he's telling a dying Angier who was who, I believe he says he was the one who loved Sarah, and it's the one inside who apologizes for Sarah's death as he's being taken to the gallows. Yeah, he does do that, and I thought that was strange. What he says was, I'm sorry for Sarah. I didn't know whether he was just saying... Sorry that he turned up. I don't know that he was saying he was sorry for killing her. He was sorry for being the angry evil one who caused her to hang herself after a fight. Maybe, maybe not. You know, this is Nolan. I think what we've learned about Nolan is he never wants conclusive answers. He likes the idea that we're never going to have an agreeable, affirmative, solid answer. It's always going to be in shadow. But my feeling is that, yes, while you could probably hold up proof, and I hear what you guys are saying, it's interesting, I do think... That the tragedy is that nobody wins here at the end. Sure, Jackman gets to kill the guy for a murder he didn't even commit. You'd think that meant that he wins, but then he has an evil twin or a good twin or just a twin with a gun that comes for him at the end here and takes him out. And it's funny that it's a gun, too, because that was the thing that got Borden to lose his fingers. They're all so poetic. They don't just kill each other just to kill each other. They got to use the tank that you killed my wife in. They got to use the gun that you took my fingers with. I kind of like Hugh Jackman's dying speech of why he does it. I mean, people sometimes ask me, why do you go three days without sleep and editing podcasts? You do it for the audience. You don't do it for yourself. You do it for the people who listen or the people who watch the trick. So I kind of related to Jackman as he was dying. And I got why Jackman did this. It's telegraphed very early on when he first uses a double and he has to take his bow underneath the stage. He doesn't get to see the audience. What I don't buy from Jackman as he's dying, he says he did have to get his hands dirty. He had to kill himself every night. And we've had a bit of a debate with that, with this duplicating machine. Again, I wish there was something a little bit stronger there, because I don't buy that. I I get that he's still an actor, that he's still trying to justify everything he's done. I I don't know if he ever really did want to get his hands dirty. And, And so him saying, oh, well, I had to get into that machine without knowing if I'd be the dead one or the alive one. I I didn't take that as a sacrifice, as him getting his hands dirty. I don't know. I think it's pretty hard to do. I wouldn't get in it. I could say that much. I wouldn't have gone anywhere near that box. What is Cutter? What is his involvement in the end here? He's there watching them bury all the secrets. He agrees with what Tesla thought. That box should be hidden from view, and so he's burying it. He knows that there's also tons of jars full of dead Jackmans, right? He's in on the trick. We all agree that he knows how it works, and that's why he's willing to bury it. Did he know that Borden was there with a gun? Did he allow Borden to kill Angier? I think so. It's that I think Cutter feels betrayed. First, Cutter is cut out of the act. He's not allowed to go backstage. 
Angier gets all blind stage men so they can't see what the trick is. I think there's a feeling of betrayal there because he's been cut out of the act when he's stuck with them so long. And then to find out that he's still alive after he testified against Bourdain, I think that's when he wants to get revenge or, or get back at him somehow. Like I said, I don't feel like Nolan ever allows me to be completely conclusive. I'm never sure like, aha, this is the answer. But I thought it had real potential. And again, I tend to go with the answer that's the most tragic. To me, that's really sad that Michael Caine, after this whole movie, really being the one to stick by Jackman when everyone else kind of abandoned him, that's quite powerful. That's quite tragic that he would, on his watch, allow him to be killed. Yeah, I think there's more definitive answers, though, Stuart, if you look at this. I do think this is one of Nolan's most concrete endings, with the Cutter thing being the only real mystery. And even that, I think Cutter just did the thing for the girl. I think when Cutter realized how far... Angier had fallen, Cutter was out, but I think it's stated, unless you believe Borden is lying, that good Borden lived, bad Borden died, good Borden loved Sarah, bad Borden loved Olivia. Yes, you agree that, that that's conclusive. I don't, but yeah. I mean, it is, it is stated in dialogue, so... And we have this conversation in Memento. You see something clearly, I'm not trying to talk you out of it. But I see something else. I'm just asking if you're saying that the dialogue is lying. I'm saying that there's double speak and that there are lines of dialogue you could hold up to say you are correct. And there's lines of dialogue I could hold up to say I am correct. And no one is correct. I always judge what is told in the prestige as the truth. Everything else, that's the trick. And I tend not to believe <laughs> very much. I, I, I think I side a little bit more with you, Arnie. I tend to go with the dialogue spoken. But again, the last words, you want to be fooled. I, I think we see in here what we want to see. We get the message out of it that we want to. We justify our interpretation because that's what we want. We want to believe what we want to believe, whether there's the evidence there or not. Yeah, I do agree with that as well. We see the movie in it that we want to see, and we clap for the film that entertained us. But were we entertained? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Prestige? Jacob. I am clapping. I think this is a great magic trick. Much the way Memento, you had to have a short-term memory to watch a film about short-term memory. You had to remember the segment that came before, so to piece together with the segment you're watching at that time. I like that this is a film that involves magic, that uses misdirection, that uses all these time jumps to hide what the story is, to you know, so it's slowly revealed. So... It tricks us. Again, I don't mind a trick in a film as long as there's something deeper behind that trick. And this is a magic trick that goes deeper. This duality with Borden and Angier and each of those characters within themselves with the twins, with the double. I mean, there's so much here to delve into and dissect. And there's poetry and science and evolution going on. Yeah, I strongly recommend this film. It, maybe I'm fooling myself, but I'm willingly fooling myself to buy into this trick. Strong recommend. Stuart. Yeah, I'm going to strong recommend it as well. But I wouldn't have done that after first viewing. If this were a weekend of release, I would have said, yeah, I like it. But, and Arnie, I do feel for you because I had so much of your feeling about the science fiction twist that comes in the movie. It felt like it happened so late. And I couldn't believe that a movie that was about con artists would have legitimacy, would have real magic that doesn't even exist now in 2014 as existing in 1899, I mean, that was frustrating. But as I've let the movie soak in, as I've considered it reading the book and what was originally there, and just processing the film, Nolan says he wanted the film to be left with ambiguity and resonances, and I'm okay with that. You know, that is a Kubrick trait, 
I do feel like this is a more Kubrickian movie than most of Nolan's films. And I can just go with what feels strange about it. What used to upset me, I now completely accept. So I don't know how I came to that. I don't know that you ever will. But I understand where you're coming from with feeling frustrated. I just, I don't anymore. I saw the movie that I wanted to previously and thought it was a witty, wonderfully crafted three-fourths of a movie about magicians that went all wonky at the end. And now I can see really one of Nolan's finest films. I think it deserves to rank up there with Memento and Dark Knight as one of his very best. No, no, not at all. No, 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 no. I'm going to give this film a not recommend. It deserves a red arrow. It really does. And it's one of those situations. The movie, it's well acted. Other than Bale's bad accent, I stand by not liking it and finding it distracting for a good half hour of the movie. I like the performances given. I think it's a gorgeously shot film. I like Michael Caine bringing his Alfred here. You know, he's the sense of wizened humor. You know, he's the comic relief. I like the ladies in this. Piper Parabu. I never thought I'd see her in a serious movie. She actually does well. I like Rebecca Hall. I didn't even realize I'd seen her before Iron Man 3, but she was in this. I like David Bowie giving a strangely understated performance. The movie, like Batman Begins, doesn't really have a character that's an in for me, but watching it, knowing where the ending was going to go, I found myself enjoying it more. But when a movie is based upon a twist ending, and this movie is called The Prestige, it's all about the ending. And when the ending cheats, that's a not recommend. No. For all the things this movie does right, when you're hinging on a Kaiser Soze, Tyler Durden-esque prestige, and you're going to change genres of the film with no warning, no, you cheated. You don't deserve a Green Arrow. Absolutely not. I realize it's a minority opinion, but I think anybody who watches this movie the first time, Stuart, you even admitted you did. You rightfully feel cheated and pissed. But no, I mean, this film... The first time I watched it, I had a violently angry reaction for the way it cheated. And watching it a second time, I gave it every opportunity to prove to me it didn't cheat. No, it cheated. And just because the base book cheated doesn't give the movie a pass. It just means the movie was more true to the book. My question coming in was, does the book pull this bullshit? And you're just telling me it does. Okay, so I don't want to read the book either. No, this is Nolan's worst film. It's still better than a lot of movies we've reviewed lately, and perhaps that's why I was enjoying it and Batman Begins a lot more. I mean, after Nine Children of the Corns and Seven Leprechauns, especially Origins, it's kind of like, well, things have been worse. It's a well-made professional film, but there are better movies to spend your time on, movies that aren't going to lie to you at the end. So, no, Red Arrow. I just want to add this. Maybe it is a cheat twist for you. It's so much more than the twist. I don't like movies that are all about a twist ending. When it's all about a Kaiser Sose surprise, that's a fun puzzle. I mentioned this in following. But what really resonates for me is when there's a message and a power. And I think this movie is about so much more than guessing how Hugh Jackman came back from the dead. I think it's about an era. And I think it's about human potential and obsession. I think that you're looking at it through narrow spectacles. I agree that it is about a lot more, but I also think Nolan films really do rely on that prestige. Look at Memento and how the big twist at the end, or following and the big twist at the end. And this movie structures itself in such a way because of its flashback storytelling that it puts a lot of weight on the end. You know, it's a weaker not recommend. There's a lot of good things in this movie. And again, after the shit we've watched... I have to make it a weaker not recommend. 
there's stuff in here that's good versus Leprechaun Origins. There's stuff in here that's great. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I'll go that far. No. There's stuff in here that's good, but there's stuff in here that's utter shit. And, you know, it's just not worth your time. It's really not worth your time. Go watch other Nolan films. This is Nolan's worst. Batman Begins is Nolan's second worst. Well, let's do that. We're going to do that in theaters, in 70mm IMAX. I'm going tonight to see it. Interstellar is out, and I couldn't be more jazzed. I have tickets to see it Thursday in 4K resolution. I, it's not 3D. Thank God. Nolan doesn't like 3D. So, was this shot on film? Yeah, of oh, course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> he and Spielberg will be the last people to ever pick up a video camera. So, I'm looking forward to it. The trailers look pretty interesting. I don't know that I'd be seeing it without Nolan, despite what I've said tonight about the prestige and the fact that I'm not a huge fan. I have said that what he does is interesting to me. And so I'm interested to find out what this movie is really about because I don't trust the trailers. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that we've been told certain things and that there are misdirects and cues. I'm wanting to know what that little mirror thing is that's walking around yeah. behind <laughs> Matthew McConaughey. That's what I most want to know because it looks like a monolith. But uh, we'll have to see if this is his 2001 or his mission to Mars. But fingers crossed, I think I'm going to like it. In the meantime, if you want more Now Playing or if you just enjoy the podcast you've heard or any of the Nolan reviews we've done and want to hear more, please make a donation. Right now, all seven Leprechaun reviews Plus, six Lord of the Ring reviews have been released to various level of donors. Silver level donors have the three Peter Jackson Lord of the Ring reviews. Gold level donors have the seven Leprechaun reviews. Platinum level donors have all of those, plus the three animated Hobbit reviews. And then, coming out starting in early December, we're going to be reviewing the three Hobbit films for silver and platinum donors, leading up to the theatrical Battle of the Five Armies. It's your support that keeps us going and is able to allow us, I think at least Stuart and I are planning to see Interstellar twice in theaters at premium ticket prices. $23. That is thanks to you donors. A silver or gold level donation on its own doesn't even buy one movie ticket. So we need your support to keep doing the show we do. It's incredible. There's been a discussion on Facebook as to how many movies we've really reviewed and it's approaching 500, if not over 500. Oh my gosh. I know. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and how many of them have I even liked? <laughs> <laughs> Let one of the fans do the homework. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow. 500. Wow. What could I have done with my life that would have been better? Oh, I'm depressed. Nothing because of the listeners <laughs> and the donors. No, that is true. And it wouldn't be worth it. If I were sitting alone watching those movies, that is the definition of depression. Being able to share those thoughts, get revenge on those terrible movies, and having our great fans write and tell us that they appreciate our consideration on everything we do, it means the world. It's the difference between doing the show and not doing the show. Absolutely. So if you want us to keep doing the show, please head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top, and find out all the details on how to donate. So Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me, and we'll be back next week with our review of Interstellar. Here at the turn, I must leave you, Borden. Yes, you, Borden. Sitting there in your cell, reading my diary, awaiting your death for my murder. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. I thought you said I had to get my hands dirty. Well, someday perhaps you will. I just had to know that you can. 
Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another in-depth movie review. No, 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 no. Come back next week. Uh, next week, Mr. Come, come back next week. It'll be fine. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films such as Shutter Island, Gangs of New York, The Wolf of Wall Street, Avatar, 2001, A Space Odyssey, The Batman series, and hundreds more. But I followed them too long. I am their slave. And one day they will choose to destroy me. And at the NowPlayingPodcast.com homepage, you can find a link to our forums where you can discuss these films, as well as links to NowPlaying's Twitter and Facebook pages, where you can chat with the hosts and read written movie reviews. So what's the climax of our show? If you enjoy Now Playing, please support the show. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website. Or you can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and more at the Now Playing Cafe Press store. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Mr. Angier, have you considered the cost of such a machine? Price is not an object. Perhaps not, but have you considered the cost? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Men who live by dressing up plain and sometimes brutal truths to amaze, to shock. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. These things never quite work as you expect them to, Mr. Angier. That's one of the principal beauties of science. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Go home. Forget this thing. I can recognize an obsession. Don't forget your head. Well, which one is mine? They're all your heads, Mr. Angier. Where a woman, specifically Angier's wife, Julia, played by Piper Paraboo. Why do you keep doing that? Don't you know that that is uh, when Craig Kilborn was on TV, he wasn't allowed to curse. And so when he wanted to curse, he'd say Piper Paraboo. I know, did not. I did not know that that was a swear word. I, yes. I only know her vaguely for being on some silly spy show. And she's coyote ugly, but primarily I know her as a swear word. Oh, okay. <laughs> So you don't get all the fallacies and illogical things and happenstance. Hello? Was that a disappearing trick? <laughs> it worked beautifully. Are you going to come back? Because I'm not going to applaud unless you do. Yeah, I mean, this is only the turn. Where's the prestige, Jacob? <laughs> where, where did I cut off? Did I cut off? You yes. did. Oh, Hard. okay. Oh, I didn't realize that. Shit, Scarlett Johansson recorded an album with David Bowie, and I love it. This man could do anything. <laughs> really? I need to fucking order that. It's awesome. I'm not even kidding. Anywhere I lay my head is the album, and I totally endorse it. <laughs> Anywhere. I'm on Amazon right the fuck now. <laughs> Anywhere I lay my head. Okay, ordered. Thank you. But I think anybody who watches this movie the first time, and Stuart, you even admitted you did, rightfully feel cheated and pissed. And even though Unless I... Unless you're a Tesla fan. The band, of course. <laughs> I don't know which is which is more rare. Fans yeah. of the scientist or fans of the band? I can tell you the answer to that. What did they even sing? Down Boys? No, that was Bullet Boys or Warrant.
Didn't they do signs? Uh, God, Tesla. When the children cry? No, that was White Lion. Fuck, I don't know. But 95% of Americans aren't even going to know Tesla was a scientist. So they're both equally obscure.